hope you'll leave your scriptures open this morning as we consider Psalm 126, as we continue this sermon series, the songs for the journey. What is this journey? But a journey with the Lord to his presence for worship as a people. All of those aspects of this journey are important for us to remember, things that these Psalms of Ascent are helping us to see over the course of these weeks. If you've been with us for a little while, you remember just a couple weeks ago we were in Psalm 124. In Psalm 124, the psalm looked back to the rescue of the Lord in the past. It said these words, If it had not been that the Lord who was on our side, and then it goes on to tragedy upon tragedy, if it had not been that the Lord was on our side, but he was. It remembers. Psalm 125, last week looked forward to the rescue of the Lord in faith. So 124, looking back, 124, looking forward in faith, those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. Now we come to Psalm 126. And it begins by looking back. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it begins. When, looking back upon that moment, of rescue, on the basis of God's rescue in the past, then in the second half of the psalm, it looks forward to God's rescue in the future. How does it do that? Well, look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. It's a cry again of faith. Really, in many ways, it's Psalm 124 and 125 all wrapped up into one six-verse song. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Now, honestly, this uh, sermon has been a difficult sermon to prepare to preach. And I think that there are two reasons why that I've had a difficult time preparing to preach this psalm. The first reason is, personally, it's been a hard season of life for me. Particularly, even this last month, since my, my father passed away at the beginning of, of last month, it's been a difficult season. Sort of uh, unexpected waves of grief have come. So it's been a difficult sermon to preach a song, a psalm all about joy that's like a dream, right? And then I think the second reason why is because it seems like this psalm is a psalm. Of joy. The circumstance is great rejoicing. And in this season, in the last month, joy has been a hard emotion to come by. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have had seasons like this, or perhaps you're in a season like this in which joy is hard to come by. And psalms like this can be hard to sing. This psalm starts by talking about restoration talks about a dream and laughter and joy. The Lord has done great things. Jeremiah, be joyful. That's your takeaway from Psalm 126. Be joyful. And then, it was actually late last night after reading this psalm over and over again and reading through commentaries for over many hours, it was actually late last night that I realized this psalm is actually, verses 1-3 through three are a memory They are a a recounting of a season in which there was a great turning of fortune. A season in which there was a turning of fortune out of suffering and into rejoicing, joy, 
and gladness for the people. But verses 4 through 6 are the present reality. This psalm is not an exclamation of joy. Though it remembers a time when the people made just such an exclamation. It remembers the season of the exclamation of joy. But this psalm is a psalm of a prayer of a weary traveler who knows that joy is just around the corner. He knows it because he's seen it in the past. The way the Lord has turned the fortunes of the people. But right now, the traveler sows in tears. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would help us to to appreciate this gift to us. Your Word this morning, again, coming to us. Living and active. Filled with Your Holy Spirit's voice. Giving us the gift of words to sing back to You. Thank You for giving us a prayer. Thank You for the realism of Your Word in the full breadth of what it brings to Your people. May we hear and believe and walk according to what we receive today. Thank You, Lord. We trust You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's psalm comes in two parts. I've already mentioned these two sections, verses 1 through 3 are filled with remembering and singing. Verses 1 through 3 are a a great memory. Verses 4 through 6, the second half of the psalm, are prayer and hoping. It is a, a, a section of pleading with the Lord in the circumstance of sowing in suffering. Let's begin by looking at the remembering and seeing this morning. Now, the passage begins... When the Lord, when, now when you see the word when, you've got to ask the question, when? <laughs> when, when was that? The psalmist begins by remembering, and then he turns very quickly to singing, but when is he talking about? When did this great turning, this great restoration take place? Was it the exodus? Is the psalmist writing a psalm that recalls the great exodus of the people of God? They had their fortunes as a new and being established people of promise in Canaan, were then through a famine transported to another land. They had some favor in that land, but then their fortune turns and they became slaves in that land of Egypt. And for 400 years they suffered under the Pharaohs, but their number multiplied greatly so that then in a moment, After ten plagues, the Lord turns their fortunes and they find themselves transported from being slaves to a people who plunder their previous masters. And coming across the Red Sea, they find themselves not even having to do battle from their enemy, but simply marching. And the Lord does battle by the great waters that crush the armies of Pharaoh. Is he remembering that great turning of fortune? Or is he remembering some great Davidic victory? The enemies are are crushing in and and they they had a season of peace, but then there was this great crushing that perhaps the Philistines were coming in again or some other invading army. And then David marches out with the people and the Lord gives a great victory and there's a turning of fortunes. Is this what the psalmist is talking about? Perhaps it's the return from exile and many have suggested that. 
that the people who, have, who knew the, the peace and blessing of the Lord in the land also knew the turning of their own hearts and idolatry and the fact that they were in exile not because of some great invading army alone, but because of their own sin. And then in exile, in a moment, like a dream, the Lord turns their fortune and turns those who had exiled them into those who would restore them to the land, rebuild Jerusalem, begin to the, the work of reestablishing worship in the temple. The Lord was turning their fortunes. What a great moment to remember. This is a beautiful psalm with many circumstances that it can apply to. But this is the further beauty of the Psalms. And I invite you to this. Receive the Psalms as a gift for your soul right where you are. Because we know that the Psalms, they were written in a context. There is something that made this psalmist record this psalm on that day when he originally wrote it down. And that the people have preserved that psalm throughout history for a reason. It's written in a context. But very often, the psalm, as many songs do, they're lifted just a little higher than the immediate context of rescue so that they can be sung on any journey to see the Lord. This is one of the gifts of the psalms, that we are allowed to lift them and see the way that the Lord works in all of these great turnings, and perhaps in a turning that you can remember in which the Lord has worked in your life and you remember that season of rejoicing. You remember that season of gladness. I mean, consider the Lord himself. Could he remember the time that he was rescued from the hands of Herod? The answer is no, he was too young. When his parents fled to Egypt and then years later, he can remember that after the death of Herod, he returned to the land of his childhood. Did he sing this psalm? On that day, could Jesus remember the songs of laughter and joy of his mother Mary as she wrote and sang another song of gladness and joy? Could Jesus remember the laughter and the joy of his disciples that they sang when they slipped through the crowds in his own hometown when they sought to throw him off a cliff? And they laughed as the Lord turned his fortunes. They could sing this psalm there. Many times the Pharisees sought to Catch him in a snare or a riddle, a question. But he was filled with the wisdom of God and confounded their riddles with a question himself. And he caught them in their own snare. I would ask, did Jesus and the disciples laugh? Did they shout with joy over the meal that evening as they remembered the turning of fortunes, the way that they were restored on that day? Or what of the day of this psalm's probably greatest fulfillment? What of the day when the weeping and crying out to the Father, take this cup from me, and the Spirit strengthened the Christ, Jesus, to believe that he who sows in tears will reap with shouts of joy? When? What moment does the psalmist Remember, I would ask you, what do you remember? What great work of rescue of the Lord can we, as a people, call to mind? When did the Lord turn our fortunes? I can remember just a few months ago, fretting, dejected, 
sitting in an office on Barnes Boulevard, which itself was a rescue and provision from the Lord. But in that office, I knew that the people of this congregation needed to gather. We couldn't do this thing much longer in a 1,200-square-foot room spread out to where barely 50% of the congregation could fit even with two services. I saw those who were laboring there becoming exhausted in that labor. And then I got a text message from a partner in the gospel here at Coast, and the Lord turned again our fortunes in just a moment. And I can remember actually with Joel laughing, exclaiming as we walked through this facility, are you kidding? Is this a dream? Like when is somebody going to tell us, oh, we called the wrong church, all right? We didn't mean for you to be walking through here. We didn't mean for your congregation to be able to gather in this way. Actual laughter, actual shouts of joy. How recently the Lord has turned the fortunes of the people who would gather in His name to celebrate His glory, to remember His gospel. I wonder, David, if you could write a song for us. What if you wrote a song that remembers this time, that in this season, during the course of a pandemic, the Lord gathered His people again? Or Jana, could you write a poem that captures the laughter and delight of those who dream? Could you artists out there draw that picture? Could we remember the day that the Lord gathered His people all together in one place, even as we long for those yet unable to gather, to gather again because there's a place for us? Can we remember? Can we be a people who are glad in the work of the Lord to provide for the worship of His people? You see, the word is restoration. The word of the psalm, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. The word restored is the word to turn again, to to return, to turn again the fortunes. There is a memory of a better day, a memory of a time of peace and rest and worship freely for the people of God, and then there is a present season of trial and suffering, and then in a moment the Lord turns again the fortunes of the people. And we can rejoice with joy at seeing that turning. Like those who dream, the moment is so sudden, so unexpected, so clearly the work of the Lord that it's as though they were dreaming. It was not the natural next step. Whether it's the Exodus, whether it's a Davidic victory, whether it's the return from exile, or the gathering of a people in this building today. It was not the natural next step that was expected. It's like it didn't fit with reality. And so we have to laugh. That's funny. That's what makes humor. It's unexpected, but the Lord interrupts and does a great work. We laugh and we sing shouts of joy, laughter and joy. I want to take a second to consider joy, even though I've said it, it's a difficult one to consider these days. I've seen so little of joy, not only in my own life, of my own heart of late, but as I look around at our surrounding culture, there's so very little 
of joy to be found. I see a lot of frivolity. I see a lot of silliness. I see a lot of entertainment. Consider our jokes. Most of our jokes, our comedy, our memes, they're cynical. They're not really funny if you think about it. They're more of a comedic expression of hopelessness than actual joy producing. Eugene Peterson writes of our culture this way, the enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of our joy in our culture. Society is bored, gluttonous king, employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. I just think that has got to be one of the best descriptions of our present moment, your and my moment, where we live. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. I consider social media itself that has moved away from a way to connect people who are not physically near one another, that social media has morphed into a collection of feeds, many of whom don't You don't even know that person personally. You just followed them because they've posted a funny meme. Many are simply called influencers or social media personalities or content creators. We don't even know their real names. They just go by their social media handles. How how much of our feed is filled with that? Most of these feeds aren't true communication. They're just maybe a two to three second long chuckle mostly chuckles at snide remarks, photos, and gifs. Watch yourself or watch someone near you as they scroll their way through social media feeds. How long do they stay on any one? And inevitably you'll hear, (laughs) pause, bored. (laughs) It's not even comedy if it can only make you... Barely chuckle for a second. How would we expect for there to be any sort of depth of joy if that's the best entertainment we can get? It would seem that all of our popular culture has become an effort at becoming a court jester, otherwise known as a court fool, by the way, trying to make a culture citizen of citizens, a people who are rich as kings who can afford to hire jesters. And we're simply laughing in the midst of our boredom, laughing in the midst of our mindless entertainment. Now, how do I know that we're rich as kings? Just look at the devices that are in our hands and the data plans that are attached to them. As we consume meme after meme, we're rich as kings, but just as bored as kings, consuming entertainment after entertainment. I don't see much genuine laughter. I don't see much true joy. In some of the novels that I've read recently, the the authors beautifully describe this as a sort of smile that never touches the eyes. It's just a little chuckle, but the eyes never lift. There's no light that's brought to the face, like the light that's brought in when our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Now compare that to cheap entertainment, so easily consumed passively with no real inner investment by the viewer day after day, hour after hour, a sort of joy that suddenly comes 
Just a, just a little chuckle, just a little moment. Now compare that with the joy that comes after a long season of grief and in a quick turning, a restoration and a rescue, a, a, a sort of light at the end of the tunnel, and then you, you pass through and there's light everywhere as the Lord has rescued His people. Consider the image of a God who wipes away every tear from every eye. What do you think the sound in that room will be? I can tell you one it's not going to be. Weeping. It's not going to be weeping. It's going to be laughter and shouts of joy. That's the sort of rescue that penetrates not only the eyes, but into the soul. So I would ask you, Do you remember, do you remember a moment when the Lord came and he gave you not just a a fleeting memory, but a real turning, a turning again, a rescuing, a sight of something glorious and good? I'm not particularly good at remembering joy myself. Perhaps you find yourself, you're like, I'm not really sure, I can't call anything to mind right now. Now, for me, since childhood, the Lord has used music to bring both lament and gladness. I like, I need a little bit of help, all right? Some of you, I, 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 I have friends that I, I say that they're, they're uh, unconditionally happy. They're irrevocably happy. It's almost like you can't mess with it. They're just gonna laugh. That's nah, not me. I need a little bit of help. For me, Music helps. It helps me remember the things that are deeply sad so I can mourn in them. They help me remember the things that are a turning of fortune. They help me remember them. It helps me lift, lift me out of melancholy into a state of remembering of the joy of the Lord in rescue. I would encourage you to consider. Consider your life. Consider moments in which you have remembered well. And go back to that place and ask that the Lord would help you to remember so that you can enter into the joy of verses 1 through 3. The joy of remembering. Now, I need to make mention of two quick things before we move to the second half of this psalm. The first is this. The majority of the first half of the psalm is actually talking about the great things that the Lord has done for them. And it says that the nations see it. The nations see. They're actually the first ones to say it. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The nations see this. But note what the nations see. What they see is the work of the Lord on behalf of the people. You know what that's called? They see good news. They see the gospel. In our psalm this morning, what catches the eye of the nations here is not something that the people have done. The nations don't look at Zion and say, oh, look at a happy people. Look at a people who do great things. Look at a people who have established a morality that is higher than ours. Look at a people who have greater fortune than we have. They say, look at the great things that the Lord has done for them. In our psalm this morning, what catches their eyes is not what the people have done, but the Lord's rescue that catches their attention. It is for this reason that for all of our effort to go about good deeds, that the the 
community around us might see them and glorify the Father, as Jesus says, we must also repeat and proclaim the mighty works of our God. Friends, we must preach the gospel that the nations might rejoice and be glad. Secondly, there's an order of restoration and joy. There is a correct order for those two realities. I'll put it another way. God does not obligate joy. The psalm does not begin with, be joyful, and in that state, the Lord will work great things. It's not the order of the psalm. Now, there are many times in the Scriptures, including the Psalms, that the Lord does tell us to be joyful. Rejoice. But God creates joy. Even Paul's command in Philippians 4.4, maybe some of you called it to mind just a moment ago, his command, rejoice in the Lord always. That command itself is grounded in the promise that the Lord is with you always. It says in the passage, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord is at hand. On what basis would we rejoice? Well, the Lord is at hand. And if the Lord is at hand, He obligates our joy. He creates the condition for our joy. Another way to put it would be to say that the great works of the Lord create joy in His people. So I have to ask, for all of our lack of joy, perhaps we have not seen and savored clearly the great work of the Lord. If the great works of the Lord are what creates joy in the people, and we trust that the Lord has worked, perhaps what our eyes need to do is see and remember the great works of the Lord. Perhaps our first obligation isn't joy. Perhaps our first obligation is to see the great works of the Lord. And then we can join with the nations. The Lord has great done, done great things for them. Yes, except for it's us. The Lord has done great things for us. We are the glad people. We see it. It's a small joy to see the great things that the Lord has done for them. It's a laughter-filled joy that the Lord has done great things for us. I want the great things that the Lord has done to be for you. Have you seen it? Have you explored the depths of the work of Christ in the gospel? There is great joy to be had for you in that place. I want you to see it and I want you to rejoice in the Lord's salvation. The great work of the Lord is for us. He's for us. And He's leveraged heaven for His people. And we're glad. We're glad. This is the first half of the psalm. This is the memory. This is the dream that became reality. That the psalm would have us call to mind. And then in the second half of the psalm, we have a, a movement to praying and hoping, looking at it with me, verse 4, restore our fortunes. You hear the prayer, right? He's not remembering a time that the Lord restored. He's crying out in a time in need of restoration, like the streams in Negev. He's not in a season of great streams of living water. 
He says, in a season of exhaustion and weariness in a dry place. And his prayer is that the streams would come. It's his only means of survival. It needs to be restored. We've arrived at the circumstance in this psalm. I think that this is the circumstance of the author. The current reality of the psalmist isn't the exodus. It's not a great Davidic victory. It's not the restoration following the exile. The circumstance of the psalm is a season of sowing in tears. The season of great trial and exhaustion. And so, the psalmist gives us this beautiful image of verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. That's pretty close to a proverb. It's, It's quite beautiful. What a great promise. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Then verse 6 is simply an elongated, poetic restatement of verse 5. For all our attempts at humor, entertainment, and frivolity, what we're missing in our culture's shallow laughter is what the Lord calls sowing in tears. You see, we're trying to skip that step. We're trying to skip that step by simply a removal of all negative things. One of the, one of the statements that shocked me, especially when I hear it from Christians, is I try to not think negative thoughts. Like, do you have eyes? Are you kidding? There's too much to see. There's too much that is real to not have negative thoughts. Perhaps what you need to do is weep when you see them. We don't like to do that. We've learned from our culture. We don't like to sow in tears. Again, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. A common but futile strategy for achieving joy is trying to eliminate things that hurt. There you go. Get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. Get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks. Get rid of disappointment by depersonalizing your relationships. Pause on that one for a moment. And then try to lighten the boredom that necessarily that creates. At that point, you're not feeling, thinking, or experiencing anything. And then try to lighten the boredom of such a life by buying joy in the form of vacations and entertainment. There isn't a hint of that in Psalm 126. Laughter is a result of living in the midst of God's great works. Enjoyment is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. Great joy came to a people who were slaves. Great joy came to a people who were assaulted by enemies. Great joy came to a people who were living in exile because of what they had done. Great joy came through a crucifixion. According to God's economy, joy is not on the front end of our labor. Such plunging into God's great works is by faith alone. We're compelled by joy, but not joy in the moment. 
Joy by faith. You can go back to Psalm 125 for that. It's to enter into suffering for the joy set before us. Does that ring a bell to anyone? The joy set before him, he endured. The cross. The labor of faith is a labor often accompanied first by weeping. Charles Spurgeon observes this dual aspect of God's works in this way. This sowing in tears, reaping with shouts of joy. Charles Spurgeon writes, The Lord, who alone turns our captivity, does nothing by halves. His restoration is twofold. Those whom he saves from hell, he also brings to heaven. He turns exile into ecstasy, banishment into bliss. He doesn't just wipe away our tears. He gives us shouts of joy. He doesn't just die for our sins. He clothes us with righteousness. This is the Lord who works in full so that we see the depth of sorrow redeemed with a deep joy. The sowing of difficult labor becomes a reaping of an abundant harvest. That's Psalm 126. That's where we are situated. That is that which to, to which we are to be emboldened as a people. To enter in again by faith in expectation of rescue and joy. I remember my own salvation. I remember that I first heard, understood, and believed the gospel when I was four. But God did a mighty work in my own life, and it came when I was 12. And it was in the midst of probably one of the greatest challenges of my own life. It was after my my father, who led me to Christ, left our home, divorced my mother, and left me... If you knew the things that I thought, the broken ways, the the holes it left in me. I remember telling my mom one day, I think someone took my parents and replaced them with aliens. I felt like I was living, not in a dream, but a nightmare. And, And one day, a man showed up into town. His name was Dan Sigler. And he invited me to his church. He had become the youth pastor there. He had been my brother's former youth pastor. And in that place, a couple very simple things happened. A man named Jim lifted up his... Actually, a kid. He was probably 13. He lifted up his eyes and he saw that this new kid who looked very alone was there in the service. And he came over to me and he said he and Chad said, we're having a lock-in tonight. Would you like to come and join us? I said, lock-in? That sounds terrifying. I'm 12. I don't know any of you. I'm in a, a horrible place in my life. I didn't say all that, but that's exactly how I felt. I mean, no, right? I'm busy right now. I'm sowing in tears. And Chad said, who's standing next to Jim, he said, what if I did a, a somersault? <laughs> what are you talking about? No lie, this actually happened. He said, what if here in this Southern Baptist 100-year-old church hallway filled with people, 
I did a somersault right in the middle of the hallway. Then would you come? And I thought, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I, I can't. I don't see the connections. And he said, well, I'm going to do it, and we'll see. He did a somersault, and I didn't miss anything that Dan led. That was about Christ. What about somersaults and stupid stuff? He prayed. He's taught the word. I listened to Pastor Jim preached the word over and over again. And it was like I was saved all over again. In a moment, like a dream out of a nightmare. Into what became a a life filled with shouts of joy. And I can't stop telling you guys know how many times I've told you. Lift up your eyes. See who is there. Somebody's lonely this morning. Someone's on the verge of tears, and they need you to say, what if I did a somersault? And then don't stop preaching the gospel. In a moment, I I remember that. Can you call it to mind? Can you call to mind a season of sowing in tears and the incredible joy of God's rescue and salvation in the most unexpected of fashions? Sowing in tears. It may mean, I think as two possibilities. Sowing tears is to suffer for the sake of faith. And what you're li- literally sowing in the ground, the seed is tears. It's what Jesus means when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What is sown? A life laid down for Christ. Sowing in tears. Another way of understanding, and I think probably the the more likely direct implication of this psalm is sowing with little hope. It's, It's walking into a field, scattering seed while weeping. Because you see that the land is parched, and it would take a miracle for there to be any harvest at all here. And it's to go out into the harvest field and weep as you sow. But he who sows in tears with little hope, according to nature, will reap with joy according to the great work of the Lord alone. I'm going to say it again. He who sows with tears, with little to no expectation according to nature, will reap with joy according to the great work of what the Lord has done. I would offer to you two scriptures. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Continue sowing. The land is actually parched. There's so much of the soil that is hard-packed earth, scorched by the sun, and abundant with weeds. Jesus himself says that is the circumstance into which the sower sows. And then, the sower walks out the next day, and he sees a miracle. He's so used to walking out and seeing more trampled seed, more scorched earth, more choked out seedlings. And he walks out and he sees something that has burst through the ground and it's borne fruit 30, 60, 
100-fold. I wonder how many times did Chad do somersaults before I showed up? I can tell you this right now. I never saw him do a somersault again, but I saw him do many other things to make a fool of himself just to tell someone, I saw you. I saw you. Laboring over and over again. 2 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Of course, the work of the Lord is to make His gospel known. Knowing that in the Lord, not according to nature, not according to the world, not according to some great strategic plan of ours, but in the Lord your labor is not in vain. According to nature, the labor of the church is foolishness. How could a man dying like a criminal on a cross do the world any good? And then the glorious light of resurrection shines forth from an empty tomb. And we all step back. (laughs) Praise Jesus. We reap with joy. Shouts shouts not only of, of joy, but of surprise. I'm amazed. Not sometimes, more often than not, at what works. (laughs) Just trying to be faithful. I don't get it. It's like banging your head against the wall and you start to weep. And you say, this isn't working. (laughs) And fruitfulness. Surprise. Like a dream come true. I I would ask you to pull into your mind Mary Magdalene running back to the disciples once she discovered the empty tomb. Did she go there looking for a resurrected Christ? Pull into your minds the disciple who outran Peter, stooping to look at the linen clothes that are lying there. Imagine the moment that the Scriptures say he saw and believed. That wasn't according to nature. And then look and see Mary again. She's weeping outside the tomb. And she hears a voice, the voice of Jesus. And she cries, Rabbi! Hear her announcing to the disciples when she runs back again. I have seen the Lord sowing in tears, reaping with shouts of joy. Perhaps my favorite psalm, Psalm 30. It ends in, with verses 11 and 12, and it says this, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. You see, you wake up in the morning and you put on the itchiest, scratchiest, grungiest, most suffering-filled clothes, and you expect to wear them until you fall into your bed at night. Sowing in tears. And he looses the sackcloth. And he clothes me with gladness that my glory, this is why he does it, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I remember when you did that and I think you'll do it again. As we close, remember the when of this psalm. It's a prayer. It's a prayer of a people who are yet sowing in tears. Tears. 
I thought we were the happy faith. I thought we sang joyous songs. Tears? What do, what do tears have to do with the Christian faith? Tim Keller says something I think is just so true. Tim Keller writes, Why was Jesus always weeping? Why do we think he was always crying? Because he was perfect. Because he was more loving than us. Because he was more compassionate than us. Because he was more sensitive to God's heart than us. Because he had higher aspirations for people than we do. And the more, listen, the more perfect you get, the more you're going to weep. And we weep, and we sow, and we labor, and we weep. And in comes the bursting of joy. As God does his great work among his people. The believer has seen that which is good. We've seen the Lord. We've seen redemption. But when we look around us in the world, what we see is so much of that which is filled with evil and sorrow and frivolity and that which is done in vain. In vain. There is no promise. There is no sowing that is coming. It's just gone like a vapor. And we remember how the Lord has broken into the life of His church so often in the past with great works. And it encourages us in our labor, emboldens us to go and sow in tears. Remember the exclamation of joy when the Lord did great things for us. And so we pray. This psalm becomes our song. It becomes our prayer as we journey to worship the Lord, restore our fortunes, O Lord. And we pray with a great memory of your redemption in mind. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift that your word is to us, that today, we could turn elsewhere, but today, we are given this psalm. I pray that your church would be emboldened. I pray that your church would go and die again. Go and love again. Sow again in tears. And expect, Lord, by faith that what you have done in the cross and resurrection would be the pattern of the Christian life. And that you would cause us to reap with great joy. Well, we trust you for these things. You alone are the place from which true, soul-penetrating joy might come. And so we trust you alone in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.